vengeance. I am the knight. I am... Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast. For each week, my co-host will never and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, how are you tonight? I'm doing all right. Um, I am on the road, so the audio sounds weird. It's all my fault. I left the good mic at home, and I remembered like I, when I was 30 minutes down the road, and I was like, oh. Question I have for you tonight, though, since I'm in a different computer setup. We've been doing Zoom for what seems like an eternity now. And not just you and me, but like us as a society with the pandemic and all. My brain can't wrap itself around not looking at a picture of another person, right? Because I, I want to make eye contact. I want to look at somebody when they're talking to me. But Matt, if I look at your picture, then I'm not looking at the camera. And I see me not looking at you. And it just weirds me out, Matt. How, how do you fix this? I don't know. My eyes, I feel like, are almost constantly shifting between the person I'm talking to and the camera and myself to make sure that I'm, like, not looking too weird. And I don't even know anymore. And it's funny. I was having a discussion about this, something similar to this, at work today. Because the company that I work for, the the theater company that I work for, wants to start doing a podcast. And, of course, because... Someone who does this is on staff. Guess who is going to be producing said podcast? <laughs> Never tell people you do anything, Matt. That's the mm, that's hey. that, that's your first mistake. But what was interesting when it comes to you just asking this is there was a discussion of well, do we want to also release the video? And I'm like, no, nobody wants to sit and <laughs> watch people on Zoom on a video. Not anymore. There was a novelty to it at the beginning of the pandemic, but now everyone is sick of their own Zooms, let alone watching other people's Zooms. If we had a cool set, right? That, yeah, I mean, we, we did something with backgrounds or something, but mostly, like, I've watched the videos of some of these episodes, and it's like, yeah, I've thought about releasing them as Patreon bonus content, but there's there's not anything to really engage maybe someday maybe we'll have to work on it and someday we'll have something exciting well hey you remember uh you remember when tony came on and pulled out his wiener that was that was a show that, that was something and again that that's patreon bonus content baby <laughs> the triple x stuff yep paid uh, subscription only now i i did actually want to just remind our audience as we have a sizable audience who are not patreon backers of the tiers of the Patreon, because we haven't talked about that in a while. Quite a while, mm. actually. So Run it down for the people. I thought it was time for us to, to remind everyone. Give the so, freeloaders a push. Yes. So everyone, there are currently four tiers named for four Robins. The $1 tier is the Damian Wayne tier. Because the Will would, worst of the Robins. Will would not allow me to go higher on Damian. And for a dollar, you get the show two-ish days early. Tuesday drop, sometimes a Wednesday if I'm having a rough week, but that's only happened once or twice. And you get the shout-out at the end of the show. The second tier, the Tim Drake tier, 
that's where you start getting bonus content. Once a month, Will and I do some kind of wacky bonus episode where we discuss other Batman media. Uh, We've done animated shows. We've done movies. We've done recently two episodes of 66. That was last month. That was. Uh, We might at some point do pros we might do oh we've done podcasts we so we've done audio as well but we might do pros we might do and unburied we did unburied too yes yes so there there have been all manner of different things Uh, we've also talked hopefully sometime in the next couple of months to do an additional probably bi-monthly or quarterly additional bit of bonus content where we read something by creators that we've read their stuff for the main pod that isn't Batman work. So we've talked about possibly the Denny O'Neill question or Matt Wagner's Grendel. Something from Charles Soule. Mm, yep, we can go there too. At the $10 or Jason Todd tier, that is the tier where after three months, you get to request an episode. You give us either a topic or a story and i craft the rest of the episode around that topic or story everyone will get multiple asks i need to get back to some of our ten dollar tier jason todd backers and i apologize that i haven't but we will be getting there soon i promise and you see this is the jason todd tier because theoretically if you hate us you could pick something truly terrible, which, you know, some of our quote unquote friends uh, have done. It's Dan's fault. We read uh, White Knight, for example. Yes. Thanks, brother. Really appreciate it. And the best. Yes. And finally, the $25 tier, the Dick Grayson tier, all of the above, plus at that level, not only do you get to pick the theme of an episode, you get to appear on that episode. And that one, I've been better about keeping up with the requests because that that's $25. That, that's a lot of money and it's appreciated. Very uh, much so. Yes. The money does help. This helps pay for our Zoom license. It helps pay for hosting of the podcast. It helps pay for DC Universe Infinite so we can easily access these books. It's really appreciated for those who can pitch in. I don't expect everybody to pitch in, but if you can, that's great. If you can't, tell tell your friends. Go on to one of the podcatchers that we're on and post a review. I don't think we have any reviews. I've never pushed it, but everybody else does who does a podcast, so... Maybe I should start saying, add that into the end of the episode. Be like, hey, go on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever and write us a review because that is apparently helpful. Like and subscribe like or something. Something like that. And the other thing to add, and this we've mentioned more than all the tiers and things, we're currently at 11 backers. When we hit 20, all backers, not just the ones who get bonus content, all backers get to listen to what will probably be two hours of me and Will ranking all 13 Star Trek movies. I would actually have to watch Beyond to do that. You've never seen Beyond? Into Darkness hurt me so badly. 
I was I gave up. Beyond is markedly better. Nothing could be worse. I I would have to watch it again. I will say I missed I skipped Beyond is the first Star Trek movie I had not seen in the theater since Generations. And Generations was the first time I was kind of old enough to to go to a movie. But I mean I don't know when Undiscovered Country came out. I was 92. probably 92. Okay, so I was I was old enough then. But Next Gen was the thing I was into. So that was when it was like, okay, I'm going to go and see this. Saw them all. I saw Insurrection. I saw Nemesis by myself. Nobody else <laughs> in the theater. And yeah, Beyond, I just didn't make it. And I eventually watched it on streaming. And it it was pretty good. But we will we'll, we'll get there when we get there. You still haven't started Picard season three, right? No, we are. We've just started season two, so hopefully we're gonna watch another couple episodes this weekend. the The plan is to basically have finished season two when there's we're halfway ish through season three, so we can then binge season three and be like caught up as the season ends. Ah, smart, smart, smart. So we 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 just started season two. This past weekend, we watched episode one, and so we're there. We're getting there now. And was Picard is an android, and that's the weirdest thing. It is. And I, I try not to think about it too much, because it makes my brain hurt a little. And I mean, they eventually even tied some of that into Disco in season four with the, the android process. But yeah. I hope that this, this restructuring that they're talking about at Paramount doesn't put the kibosh on the Section 31 series that was talked about, because I want that. Even if I know Disco wasn't your bag, but the Section 31 series is going to star Michelle Yeoh. And Michelle Yeoh, uh, Section 31, it's too much for me to not be like, yes, I want this. Well, yeah, as I was reading an article somewhere today, if if Yo wants to do it, Oscar nominated Michelle Yo. If she wants to do it, now should be the time to do it and get it done. Yeah. And knock wood after this Sunday, uh, Oscar winner Michelle Yo. Because Everything Everywhere All at Once was very good. Yeah, it was my favorite film of the year. And I I see a lot of movies in the theater. But we do have a show to do. And speaking of Patreon backers, this one comes back from Dan. Dan, who made us read White Knight. This time he went with something a little wackier, a little more... A little more impish. Yes, that is the perfect word for it indeed. Because tonight we are reading three stories that feature Batmite. Batmite is a weird-ass character. Yes. At some point, we'll we'll have to do the Brave and the Bold episodes with Batmite, voiced by Paul Rubens, who was the right fit for voicing Batmite. But Don't and, have enough time in the show to get into Paul Rubens. No, but we will avoid the new Adventures of Batman, which was the late 70s which was a short-lived animated series where batmite was a featured part of the series 
Oh, honey, no. Yeah, it, it was basically that great gazoo season of the Flintstones, mm. only it was Batmite. Mm. The, the thing about it was that the series also had Adam West and Burt Ward as Batman and Robin. So you had, you know, them reprising the roles, but you also had Batmite in, if not every episode, most of them. Hmm. You know, it's one of these things where maybe I'm wrong and I just remember the episodes with Batmite so distinctly that they all struck me as having Batmite in them. But, oh boy, I do not remember. I mean, it came out... Yeah, it was the late 70s. So it was like a decade after 66. And it lasted for 16 episodes. At least it was brief. Yes. But I remember there was a lot of Batmite. And not even in just the like Batman costume. Like it was a pink Batman costume. It was very weird. Hmm. Yeah, but the the Paul Rubens in Brave and the Bold looks like the Batmite that we see in these books. So let's let's start with what might uh, I will say what I was going to say is the weirdest of the night, but I think that any of these could get with the caveat of a what might be the weirdest of the night. First story of the night is Legend of the Dark Might. This is Batman Legends of the Dark Knight, number 38, and Batman Might Fall. The writer is Alan Grant, with art by Kevin O'Neill, colors by Oliotics on Legends of the Dark Knight and Digital Chameleon on Might Fall, letters by John Workman on Legends of the Dark Knight and Clem Robbins on Might Fall, edited by Archie Goodwin, with Bill Kaplan as assistant editor on Legends and Chuck Kim on Might Fall. The cover dates are October of 1992 and May of 1995. Bob Overdog is a bad guy. He's a thief, a killer, and is usually so high he can't think straight. But all that will change thanks to one bad trip where he runs into Batmite. So this is by far the most involved story of the night. It's an actual story. Yes. And it is super fucking weird yes both narratively and visually tragically both grant and kevin o'neill passed away last year not too far apart within a few months of each other which is sad i don't know if this is o'neill's only batman work but he did not do a lot of batman while we have covered a whole lot of alan grant over the course of this podcast and we have barely scratched the surface on alan grant batman work Mm, but i have taken the piss out of him a couple of times for being a scotsman trying to write an american batman true this time everything could sound weird and it's okay because this is really weird and there is the the real question throughout this entire thing of whether or not any of this stuff with batmite is real this could all be a drug-addled hallucination of our other protagonist bob overdog or 
that might could have taken an interest in said Bob Overdog. It is never clear one way or the other. The unreliable narrator is probably one of my favorite literary devices. I, I could not get enough of it. The, the lingering question of whether this happened or not, whether any of this was true, perfect. And every time you're like, oh yeah, it had to be. It's like, well, maybe not. I mean, there's a bit where a piano and Batman sees it moves uphill to squash some guys. So probably really that might, but also there's enough other weird shit in the DC universe that maybe it wasn't Batmite. Maybe it was something else, and Overdog was just seeing Batmite. The first one of these, Legends of the Dark Might, would have been the first use of Batmite post-crisis. Batmite has not really appeared in canon much since the crisis. I wonder why. Yeah, when Dan originally asked about this episode, he was like, wasn't there a Morrison story with Batmite? I'm like, yeah, that's R.I.P. And we can't do R.I.P. without Will having read everything leading up to R.I.P. Because you're going to have to read it at least twice for it to make any kind of sense with context. Without context? No. Matt, still, still trying to push Morrison onto me. We'll get there. <laughs> You'll appreciate Still gaining acceptance You appreciate What Morrison does It's just not to your taste It's not to my like Intellectual capabilities ah, I, I think I wouldn't say that People say that stuff about Morrison But it's <laughs> It's hard to come up with Let's say I think Morrison Is Morrison is an acquired taste. I will not argue that point. I wish we would read... We have to read more Justice League. That's before they really embraced the weird outside of their Vertigo work. Like, listen, The Invisibles, Kill Your Boyfriend, that stuff was always high weird. But the, their superhero work didn't start getting high weird until new x-men and then the batman stuff that's where it does reach this layers within layers within layers thing but we're not talking about morrison tonight we're talking about alan grant and kevin o'neill and batmite and that's a whole level of weird in itself yes and and i want to go back to the the question earlier about well gee did any of this stuff happen for me it was resolved and a more ambiguous ending, I think, is Overdog just dead, right? Dead on the ground with that really subtle little, you know, cowl shadow, which was nice. But then you get this postscript over in the might world. That to me signifies that, okay, this did happen because it's no longer a hallucination if he's dead. And then I will also say, I got the postscript, I got the reference, because we read Final Night. Oh, and something occurred to me, just as you said something. For those out there, out there who aren't as deep into the Batman thing, 
probably should explain what Batmite is, shouldn't we? Mm. Yeah, wouldn't hurt. Because Batmite is not a concept that pops up that often anymore. Although there was a Batmite miniseries, not less than a decade ago, five or six years, and he was in the Morrison run. Batmite is a fifth dimensional imp, uh, similar to Mr. Mixius Bitlick over in the Superman books, only as opposed to being a giant dick and tormenting Batman like Mixie does Superman, Batmite is Batman's biggest fan. But what this means is often he's like, oh, let's make Batman's life more interesting. And by make it more interesting, it often means making things more difficult. You brought up that miniseries, and uh, let's play a little game of quiz, Matt. If you had to pin down a year, one year, when did it come out? All right. It was in the New 52, so that means it is between 2011 and 2016. It was actually part of the DCUYOU initiative, so that puts it right after convergence so that is 2015 ding 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 we have a winner now the creative team heath corson wrote it i remember that Mm, you sure about that maybe not gustavo i can't remember the right i definitely can't remember the artist's name it's gustavo something i believe Nope. Damn. Oh, I'm thinking I'm mixing up. I think I'm mixing it up with the Bizarro miniseries that came out at the same time. Now I do not remember the creative team off the top of my head. Dan Jurgens and Corin Howell. Huh. Yeah, he's definitely mixing it up with the Bizarro miniseries. Uh, I now need to look that up because I maybe I am. I want to believe I'm mixing that those two up. The Batmite miniseries was not terribly memorable. The Bizarro one that came out at the same time, I recall enjoying quite a bit more. It was Bizarro and Jimmy Olsen on a road trip. Yeah, that was Heath Corson and Gustavo Duarte. Okay, I just mixed up the creative teams. There we go. It makes me feel a little bit better anyway. But back to what we're actually talking about. Part of the problem with talking about this series in an audio medium is that this thing is so much about Kevin O'Neill's bizarre visuals. There's so many Easter eggs, so many signs in the background, so many little twists and quirks to the visuals of it that it's hard to describe. It would be like, again, going through Kingdom Come or New Frontier and pointing out all the little things that are in the background of each of those books. And and this is the total, like, opposite end of the spectrum from those two. Kingdom Come, high art, rigid forms and structure, beautiful visuals. This is dirty and punk and underground and fucking weird. It's unsurprising that O'Neill's background is in 2000 AD. Uh, not a surprise at all. No, this is is right out of that. O'Neill, of course, is best known as the co-creator of A League of Extraordinary Gentlemen with Alan Moore and possibly Martial Law as well. But 
this is really gritty, really weird. Every character is hyper deformed. Overdog is not quite monstrous, but deranged. The the closest we've seen is another 2008 alum, Simon Bisley, who did Batman Judge Dredd. Bisley's stuff is a little more painterly. It is more painterly. But O'Neill's stuff is just bizarre. And by the way, I, when I was looking up, you know, a little background on this, fun fact, O'Neill's art was actually caused a pretty big fight between DC and the, the CCA for a short story he did with Alan Moore in an issue of uh, Green Lantern. Huh. You can imagine with the kind of stuff he does, the CCA was comics code authority was not going to be in love with some of the weird and deformed that he does. I mean, some of my favorite panels are after Overdog dies and just the gore and the splatter, the viscera. It's, it's lovely. When his head literally splits in half. So the first of these two stories is basically Overdog running afoul of Batmite after he and his droogs pull off a heist, stealing a bunch of drugs from a big-time dealer. And he runs off and runs into Batmite in an alley. Of course, he had just done some serious psychotropics, so it could have been all in his head. And he winds up getting pulled into Might World, where you see all of the Might versions of these heroes. You also see Batmite turn from the usual adorable, like chubby little bat cherub into a hideously monstrous bat monster thing who kills these guys. And then he winds up with Bob Overdog. And by the end, he gets dropped back and believing that Batmite wanted him to be a better person. And he winds up in Arkham because he's ranting about little chubby Batmans who sucked him into another dimension while also he is theoretically responsible for the deaths of all of these guys that he was working on a deal with. And as Batman uh, so cleverly notes, well, they're not alive to say anything about an imp or not. And then Mightfall is, in case you couldn't tell from the title, set concurrently with Nightfall as we actually see Bob break out of Arkham during the big breakout in Batman 491, it's set concurrently and it's sort of in between the raindrops of that story. And then when he gets out and starts preaching to a bunch of tweakers about how they shouldn't be taking drugs, they beat him and push acid down his throat. And then suddenly when he's high again, he sees Batmite again, where he has to go again into Might World and deal with Bane Might. And Overdog is the Azrael of this story. That all tracks. Yep. And saying it that way, it seems like a very simple sort of story. But it's not. It's really weird. And while I I enjoyed it, I'm not entirely sure what, if anything, Grant was trying to say. I don't know if there's a theme to it as much as I want to do something weird with Batmite. It does, I think, by the end, overstay its welcome. 
especially my fall wasn't that um like a prestige one shot like it yeah. was it was longer 48 pages could have been shorter it's broken up into three chapters and a lot of it doesn't feature batmite or overdog a lot of it is bane might in might world and you get a lot of bane might and I'm not entirely sure why. A lot of jokes about how Bane might just likes to brood. Yeah, and the there seems to be this kind of this commentary about sort of the state of Batman comics, the the commentary on Nightfall almost. Not much of that lands. It's especially weird since Grant was writing Shadow of the Bat at the time and did a Nightfall crossover. This isn't an outsider. This is someone who was involved in the books at the time. I mean, maybe he wasn't writing one of the main two, so maybe he was grumpy about that. But still, is it a commentary on Batmite, who is this silly character, having a hard time existing in the gritty you know, 90s? I guess there's a little of that, especially in the first one. That's I feels like it's more a comment in Legend of the Dark Might, where in the Silver Age and Golden Age stories, Batmite would show up, he'd do something wacky, Batman would have to deal with it. They were funny little stories. And we're gonna we're gonna do more more Batmite at some point or another, because I wanna do some of those wacky golden age stories where Batmite fights Mr. Misky Spitlick, where Batmite becomes Batwoman's publicist. Okay, yeah, I'm sold. There, there are fun stories, but I, that is a character that doesn't exist in the post-crisis DCU. Mixia Spitlick still exists because Mixia Spitlick's an asshole. <laughs> and a lot of these stories that we're going to talk about tonight are available in Trade, the world's funniest. And it includes the story you just mentioned where we team up uh, Batmite and Mr. Consonants there. Yeah, both the Golden Age story and the prestige format one-shot from the early aughts where it has one of the most shocking collections of artists in any comic I have ever read. It it is one we're going to have to cover because just to be able to say we read the comic that has, and I will bring this up, so I can get this exact shocking murderer's row of artists. Mike Allred, Stephen Stefano, Dave Gibbons, Joe Giella, Jamie Hernandez, Stuart Immonen, Phil Jimenez, Doug Monkey, David Mazzucchelli, Frank Miller, Sheldon Maldoff, Glenn Murakami, Alex Ross, Scott Shaw, Jay Stevens, Ty Templeton, Bruce Tim, Jim Woodring. Yeah, just some schmoes. Yeah, because basically it's Batmite and Mixie fighting across the multiverse. So the Alex Ross pages, I remember it's the big fight at the end of Kingdom Come, and you see Batmite and Mixie fighting their way through the big battle. It's wild. And I was tempted to do it for this episode, but I wanted these to be stories that were a little more Batmite-centric. Because that is as much a mixy story as it is a Batmite story. Granted, I sort of violated that with the last one of the night, but 
that one's just super fun. So I I had the trade and I was reading those those credits as you rattled them off. And now I'm just skimming through the story. It's wow. I just want to get to the Alex Ross. I mean, when you think about it, with those, you've got creators from the the Golden and Silver Age, plus some of the more mo- modern creators, characters, creators of the Bronze Age. It's wild. It is a wild freaking comic. Oh my god, mm-hmm. Alex Ross Bat- Batmite is just like a little tiny Adam West. Yes, isn't it? It's just s- such a weird, wonderful comic, and. I look forward to being able to cover the rest of this trade in the future episodes because we'll, we'll probably cover this along with that other mixy story, the Golden Age or Silver Age mixy story. Anywho. But again, back to Bob Overdog. There's part of me thinks he's trying to say something with Overdog in the end where he does sort of find this redemption. He does do good but can't resist his baser urge and decides that, boy, I should sample some of this toxic, the Bainmite's venom, and it literally makes his head explode. And I was thinking, like, why is it, you know, why is it not just venom? And I I, I guess it's just one of those things where you don't want, I don't know, you don't want to have venom in this this jokey comic of yours. But it was a good and interesting way for uh, Overdog to go, that's for sure. Yeah. I'm happy to have read it again. I appreciate it more now because I remember reading this the first time. And again, October of 92. So that's a cover date. uh, That's a cover date. So it's a street date of August or September of 92. So I'm 11 years old reading this friggin' thing. This was not what I was expecting or into. This art especially was... You know, in 92, I'm, I'm looking at, at least for Batman stuff, like Aparo and Brayfogle, and, you know, we're in the beginnings of the image revolution. Kevin O'Neill was not in those schools of art. Uh, no. I appreciate it much more now for how different it is. So this, this you say, was 90... The Legends of the Dark Knight was 92. Might Fall was 95. Ah, Okay. That was a much later sequel. Although this works better than something like Thrill Killer with its much later sequel that didn't work as a, a direct sequel. This is really one story and also does tie itself up in the end, which is nice. It's weird. It is weird, but you know what? Not bad. I agree. And I think that means... Uh, that means it's time for Legends of the Dark Might slash Might Fall on the Big Board. We currently have 231 stories on the Big Board. Number one is still Batman Year One, the post-crisis origin of Batman. Down at number 50 is The Vengeance of Bane, the origin of Bane. We've got a couple of Vengeance of Bane jokes tonight in that book. We did. Coming at a sexy 69 for the past few weeks. Batman and Robin, numbers one to three. Down at 100 is Batman Eternal, volume two. Slowly sliding down, Hush is 
down at 150 is Arkham Asylum Living Hell, the first story featuring the Great White Shark. Down at 200 is For Each Ending, A Beginning, the first appearance of Huntress. And all the way down at the bottom at 231, it's White Knight. Still sucks. I did note one other little thing that I forgot to mention. I, I made a couple of notes that didn't make it in because we were riffing too much. The two notes are one, the Batmobile we get in Lizard of the Dark Might is the most phallic Batmobile ever. I think very intentionally. Also, there's one line when Batmite is taking Bob Overdog into the Might world. He says the word I think he was trying for was disassemble, but instead he says dissemble, which I think is a clever bit of wordplay. That is good. I did not pick up on that. Yeah, I thought it was a nice little bit that Grant wrote in there. But uh, so we've gone through this. All right, let's start. And I'm not necessarily putting saying this belongs anywhere near this, but I just kind of want to start with with a spot. Where do we think this falls in relation to Batman Judge Dread? Another book <laughs> with weird art. Another book by Grant, co-written by Grant. You know, you do a show with a guy for 75 plus episodes. You start to think a lot like, and uh, yeah, I was thinking about Batman Judge Dread too. God, the narrative is better, right? Because it's it's more grounded. It's grounded in reality. It's not it's not grounded in you know riffing on DC Comics. And just that final set piece at the death metal show is still still some of the just the wackiest, zaniest, goriest stuff we've read. And so the, I, the joy of Judge Death getting a face full of fear toxin and seeing bunnies and unicorns. Yes. This can't this can't be higher than that. No. Now the question is, all right, so that's at least the ceiling. Where's the floor? What is this definitely better than? Uh I'd say Detective 824 at 156. Okay. I can I can go with that. So we're looking at 130s, 140s, 150s, somewhere in there. And and this is a section of it's it's a book that could be good, but it has some flaws. I am Batman, for example, at 142, terrible inconsistent art. Same thing with Injustice at 140, clown at midnight, ambitious, but doesn't necessarily work all the time. All right. It's not better than Blades at 146. Oh, of course not. It's it's not better than Clown at Midnight at 145 either. It probably falls right in the area below Clown at Midnight and Blades. Because you got Injustice Part 2, which again, solid enough story, but wildly inconsistent art. And you have 148, The Brave and the Mold, which is the Tom King, Batman, Swamp Thing team up, which has gorgeous art, but falls into the Tom King trap of formalism and embracing those themes that Tom King loves to sort of wallow in and has a, an ending that 
isn't supported by the rest of the story. Killed the paw. Yeah. There is nothing particularly problematic in this story. No. Which puts it above Living Hell at 150, which has some problematic elements to it. So I'm thinking between 146 and 150. I think in recognition of the art, let's do the new 148 between Injustice and Brave in the Mold. I am good with that. Our second story of the evening is Batmite's New York Adventure. This is Detective Comics Volume 1, number 482. The writer is Bob Rosakis, pencils by Michael Golden, inks by Bob Smith, colors by Anthony Tolan, letters by Milt Snappen, and edited by Al Milgram. The cover date is March of 1979. Batmite pops up in the DC Comics offices, demanding his own feature, and hijinks ensue. That is a very simple description for what turned out to be a very simple story. I picked this one for a specific reason that we'll get into in a minute, not realizing or remembering that it is only six pages long. It is a very wacky little short. And having done some research and digging, I kind of found out why. Oh, this is the first issue of Detective after the Batman family title, the at that time, third Bat book, folded. And they merged Batman family and Detective into one book, making it every issue a big old chunky boy with a bunch of backups. This story was originally going to be in an issue of Batman family. Hence why they're talking about Batmite getting a feature in Batman Family. The story was already done when they decided to cancel that book. And thus, it was just moved into Detective when Detective became the Batman Family title. Because this was during that period when Detective was bi-monthly because the Bat books weren't selling quite as well. Which makes the focus on Batman family all that funnier. Yeah. Basically, Batmite shows up and is like, hey, I deserve a feature in Batman family. He appears to Al Milgram, who was the editor and was an artist on other DC books at the time. And throughout the, the short story, he basically pulls the entire creative team that I listed there and they all become part of the story. Now, this is a fairly established DC Comics trope of the time where there was Earth Prime, which was our Earth. It was the the Earth with no superhumans where the writers basically, the writers and artists or the creators were getting the knowledge of these stories in dreams from somewhere else in the multiverse. And so we got stories where especially Barry Allen would wind up traveling to this earth and talking to the creators of his comics. Often, unfortunately, as we have discussed, noted sex creep Julia Schwartz, who was DC's executive editor at the time. So he would pop up in a lot of stories. But it was not the same universe, which is what Marvel always did, where Stan and Jack were producing comics about the characters in the Marvel Universe. 
it's also a rare bit of art from uh, Michael Golden, who is a creator who does not have a ton of internals credits, but is always does really beautiful work. But he, you know, does a lot of pinups and things like that and profiles. But he's done a handful of issues of Batman over the years and is best known probably for drawing the Avengers annual that is the first appearance of Rogue and some other X-Men stories. There's not a lot of meat on the bones of this story. It is a weird little six-page trifle of trifles that feels like a Bugs Bunny short. Yeah, real kind of duck-a-muck vibes. Exactly. It's there just to be like, hey, we're going to have some fun. And we're going to get Michael Golden to draw the DC, a bunch of the members of the DC bullpen. And we're going to do a little thing with Batmite. It's perfectly fine, but it's not what I remember it being. Because now here's, here's where the background on this gets a little weirder. I read this story, one of the first trade paperbacks I ever got. And it's a trade paperback I've talked about before. The 1989 Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told. Really? Yeah. And I'm not entirely sure why. Someday, when I'm able to organize stuff, I need to dig out that trade. And I want to see, because there's an introduction at the beginning, where I believe they talk about why they selected these stories. I'm really curious why this one made the cut. It's not a bad story by any stretch of the imagination, but when you're trying to capture the best Batman stories of the first 50 years, you're picking a story that has no Batman in it. Absolute strange choice. The only answers I can come up with is either whoever was selecting the stories was a huge Michael Golden fan, or they had to reach a certain page count based on publishing and you needed like six pages so it's like Ah, i've got a story for you fun little story that hey it's six pages long let's go with that one that means it's time for tech comics number 482 batmite's new york city adventure on the big board ah yeah this is a trifle this feels like it would be right in that same territory with Huntress in that uh, DC uh, Superstar number 17, 201. And like, it just doesn't really do anything. It's cute, but it's short. And it's just like, you know, basically the creators just screwing around and having a good time, which is fine. But, you know, there's I mean, not much there there. Right. I might, I mean, I think, yeah. I mean, that Hunter story is the very lowest of ambitions. It, this it, is maybe a bit more than that. That Hunter story is there basically to set the stage for all the Hunter stories that Paul Levitz had planned after that. That you needed to tell this story to get to all of those other stories. So it's very exposition. I'm looking not much, but like a few slots higher than that because. Well, this is only six pages. This is not the dour messiness that was uh, Night of Vengeance at 197. No. 
I don't think it beats 195, The Search for Santa Claus, another short, and that's a Golden Age short, that does a lot more in its six to ten pages than this one does in its. And certainly wouldn't beat Holy Terror at 194. No. So the question is, if we think it's above Flashpoint but below Search for Santa Claus, the only thing in between them is Dark Joker the Wild, which is... Is that one a monkey astronaut, or is it just Doug Mensch writing a weird story that I don't know how ambitious it was, and it was just, it's that's just so much lower than all the other Mensch-Jones graphic novels. Dark Joker is a monkey who was in the astronaut program, but then got drunk, and then just wandered around, and never quite made himself what he could be. He dreamed of having dreams. I'd probably put this above that. Okay, so this is our new 196. Our final story of the night is Crisis of Infinite Scoobies. (laughs) This is Scooby-Doo team-up number 50, or digital chapters 99 and 100. The writer is Sholly Fish, with art by Scott Geralds, colors by Silvana Breeze, Letters by Saida Timofante and edited by Christy Quinn. The cover date is November of 2019. A social media post by Robin summons Mystery Inc. to Gotham City. Only Robin never made the post. And as multiversal versions of Batman and Scooby-Doo begin to appear, it's time for the dynamic duo and the meddling teens to face their most persistent, that's the nice word for it, antagonists, Batmite and Scooby-Mite. I love any and all things Bat Scoob. And this is this is the wackiest Bat Scoob. Yes. This is supremely joyously wacky. This was specifically written as a celebration as this dropped in the 80th anniversary year for Batman and the 50th anniversary year for Scooby-Doo. This was the last issue of this series. So it is a celebration of the histories of those characters. Hence why you get every animated series version of the Scooby gang in one story and a couple of live action ones in there too, or a live action one and a comic book only one. And we've talked about Charlie Fish before. We talked about him when he did the other issue of of Scooby-Doo team up that we have we talked about him when we talked about Batman's mystery case book. Charlie Fish is one of those people who lives and breathes weird bits of DC history. So the fact this opens with Batman chasing Mr. Camera, a golden age villain who appeared a grand total of twice other than this is not unsurprising. There are other writers who I could have expected to pull a deep cut like that, but it's like, Mark Wade. We could have had a Mr. Camera episode, Matt. That is true. Two Golden Age stories. I think he might pop up in another Bat Scoob. I think we might have a chance to do it again. But, I mean, he's a dude with a camera for a head. Or a camera mask for a head. Because, you know, you have to have a mask because it's a Scooby-Doo story. So somebody's got to be unmasked. This is a big old multiversal mashup. This is Batmite and Scooby-Mite start summoning alternate versions of their respective idols. 
Scooby Might first appeared in an earlier issue of Scooby Doo Team Up. I think it's issue three. Is a Bat Might Scooby Might Scooby Doo story, and Scooby Might is an adorable little version of Scooby Doo, not to be confused with Scrappy Doo. Who who is the villain in this? Yes, yes, there is a a giant menacing Scrappy Doo, which is kind of awesome, and. This one is as absolutely reveling in the Scooby-Doo history as much as Fish's rest of Scooby-Doo team up revels in DC history. Because he knows not just his Batman history, but you should see some of the weird Scooby-Doo team ups. Like there's one that is all like gorilla characters. You got Grodd, you got the ape of Angel and the Ape. There's one that's all of the sci-fi hero teams. So Cave Carson and the Time Masters and the Sea Devils. This is a guy who loves this type of stuff. And it's fun. Say whatever else. A Batman Scooby-Doo crossover issue is always going to be fun. And there's also a couple of digs, I think, at some of the versions in here. <laughs> the the fact that the uh, Scooby Apocalypse versions show up and they have to keep telling Apoco Daphne to not shoot things. Don't and, use guns. Don't <laughs> shoot. Now, the first digital chapter is more about different versions of Batman and a couple Scoobies. And the second chapter is all of the incarnations of Mystery Inc. team. I wanted to talk a little bit about the Batman in the first chapter. So obviously we've got the uh, the Mention Jones vampire bat. Yep. Is this other one Gotham by Gaslight Batman? Yes. Gotham by Gaslight is in there. And uh, the bat with the Tommy gun. Who's that? That's Scar of the Bat. Ah, we haven't gotten to that yet. Nope. And the pirate Batman is Leatherwing from Detective Comics Annual Number 7. The Elseworlds. That year, all the annuals were Elseworlds. So you got Elseworlds for characters who would never get Elseworlds otherwise. But there's the Detective Comics Annual is Pirate Batman. And I know the Batman Annual is both a sort of traditional Batman story in the present, juxtaposed with Bruce finding the diaries of Leonardo da Vinci and knowing that he had an apprentice who used like the da Vinci flying suit to be a Batman in Renaissance Italy. I remember there was a Catlin annual. The Robin annual was uh, feudal Japan. It was Robin in feudal Japan. Yeah. We haven't done an Elseworlds episode in like 60 episodes. It's time. We did one more recently than that. We did one in January for New Year, New Batman. Okay, it feels like 60 episodes. <laughs> well, we did Eternal. That was Eternal. We we can get around to doing another Elseworlds one. I'd, I'd like to do Leatherwing. I remember really liking Leatherwing. Chuck Dixon and Alfredo Alcala. It, it's beautiful. I remember really, really nice art. We got to do Nine Lives. Yes. I want to do Nine Lives with Nine Lives, Scar of the Bat, and Gotham Noir. So it's three noir-themed Batman stories, or mobster-themed. Because I believe Scar of the Bat, I think, is Max Allen Collins. Man and, knows his noir. And then you've got Nine Lives, which is Dean Motter and Michael Lark, and Gotham Noir, which is Brubaker and Phillips. 
It should be a good episode, Matt. Yeah, I just not all of it is readily available online. Uh, I already got nine lives. I've got mine somewhere. I have to find it along with everything else. And there's also a kind of Dick Sprang, Silver Age, Adam Westy sort of Batman who pops up there too. Meanwhile, your Scooby gangs, there are seven, eight counting the regular, quote unquote, regular universe Scooby gang in here. So you've got the the normal Scooby gang. You've got the live action Scooby gang from the Scooby-Doo movies. You have a a pup named Scooby-Doo, the kid versions. You have the 13 ghosts of Scooby-Doo, which was just Shaggy, Scooby, and Daphne. You have Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated, which was the early aughts serialized sort of X-Files-y Scooby-Doo. You have Be Cool Scooby-Doo, which was a, uh, oh no, Get a Clue Scooby-Doo. Yeah, both. Be Cool Scooby-Doo and Get a Clue. Get a Clue was first. That was one where Scooby and Shaggy inherited a bunch of money and had wacky adventures with a robot. And uh, get Be Cool Scooby-Doo was sort of a more recent Cal Arts animation style reboot. And finally, Scooby Apocalypse, the zombie apocalypse comic that DC was putting out at the time that it did not feel like Charlie Fish was a big fan of, judging by the, the constant digs at Daphne with a gun and Velma causing the zombie apocalypse. This is such a love letter to all of these characters, especially when there is the giant Scrappy as the villain and then inside the giant Scrappy, which of course winds up being a suit, is all the supporting characters from all of these different versions who didn't carry on to other versions. They, they feel like they've been passed over, so they need their revenge. But not Scrappy, because nobody wants to deal with Scrappy. And then a bunch of Scrappy-Doo's show up from different universes. Nobody likes Scrappy-Doo. This is just a cutely written story. Like I love you get like the... When in the first part, when you do see some alternate Scoobies, you get the contemporary Scoobies to most of those Batman. So you get a, a steampunk Scooby to hang out with Gotham by Gaslight Scooby, and you get vampire Scooby-Doo, which everyone runs from because Shaggy. And since Mr. Camera is standing around the entire time, whenever they need to have exposition, he asks a question and someone answers. So it's actually a way to make the exposition work within the story. He gets fed up by everything. He just says, can someone please just take me to jail already? And then they wind up using his big camera head to take a picture at the end of the story in celebration. Because the in-story reason for this is this is the anniversary of Batman and the Scooby gang's first team up. So the two mites wanted to show up and do a special celebration for it. And they wind up tripping up the giant Scrappy-Doo AT-AT style, which is fun. And I have to call it out because I know it's your favorite little bit in any of these. There is one of the the Freds, the Get a Clue Scooby-Doo Fred. They're all looking at Batman. He's like, why hasn't somebody tried to unmask him yet? I read that. I was like, oh, Will's going to love that line. Yup. You love a good Scooby unmasking. 
yeah, I like how we get panels of all the Freds and all the Velmas and all the Daphnes and all the Scoobies and Shaggies. Like visually, that's just such a treat to see all of these different adaptations. Absolutely. And this particular version of Batman and Robin in this issue feel a little broader than even the Batman and Scooby-Doo of the later Scooby-Doo, Batman Scooby-Doo mysteries. This has a real Burt Ward, Adam West vibe. Mm. Up to and including the costume, the Robin costume is the traditional Dick Grayson costume. While in Batman Scooby-Doo mysteries, the stuff we're getting the past couple volumes, you've got mostly it's Tim Drake or Damien who are Robin and Dick is Nightwing. This has a really silver agey kind of vibe to it when Batman and Robin are interacting with each other or the new Scooby-Doo movies where Batman and Robin teamed up with them in animation the first time. Just be cool, big gun shooty Daphne. <laughs> yes. Listen, Fish absolutely leans into some groaners. Like when Robin's talking about posting things on social media, like, Something about Superman. Like, Superman doesn't even know how to use social media. It's like he grew up on a farm. Wah, wah. If there's any book where a groaner like that can work, it's the Batman Scooby-Doo team up. You mean he proposed and you say net and you said yes? I never say yes for proposes. Proposes? You're teenagers. Which was always the a weird, the one really weird element of mystery ink which is one of my favorite versions of scooby-doo it's like they're 17 why are you proposing to her dude but that if you've never watched mystery incorporated it probably is up on max it's a really interesting take on those characters it's much more serialized it's as close as they could have gotten to not just queer coding Velma, but flat out saying Velma is queer before they actually were able to do it in 2022. Like she has a character who's like, oh, come on. They're obviously a couple. And the pseudo girlfriend is voiced by Linda Cardellini, who played Velma in the live action movies. It's just gal pals, Matt. Yep. You read my mind. I, I was not there. Claremontian gal pals. Now, here's the question, though. What do you think about Velma? I watched the first couple episodes. It did not particularly grab me. And I went in with an open mind because you could look at the trailer, the first trailer for Velma and a lot of the problems that people had from that first trailer could have been the same problems and vibe you got off of the first trailer for Harley Quinn, where all it showed were the biggest, most outlandish moments of the show and you didn't get all of the really good character work that harley quinn does but there was one joke in the first or second episode of velma that really struck me as not a great joke and it left a bad taste in my mouth and so i just i don't have the time to go back there's too much tv that i really want mm -hmm. to see versus something that left me kind of cold and who knows, it might get better, but something's got to grab me pretty quick at this point because there's enough things that I'm halfway through that I'm really loving. Have you tried it? No. Like you, I'm just like, there are there are things I can't watch. There are things that I've watched a thousand times that I'll just watch again. Like, I will always, always, always 
be like, all right, let's watch American Dad. Like, I, I love American Dad. I have watched that series start to finish a thousand times. 15 years from now, I'm still going to be watching American Dad. New shows are scary and confusing. But yeah, like, I'm still not all the way caught up on um, Last of Us. I got one episode of that to watch. There's new Perry Mason. I'm, I don't know if I'd ever give like a marginal show a try. And you know, hey, some people might like it and more power to you, but it was not a show that worked for me. That's it. But I, you know, it's a shame there's no Batman on TV now, but there are various Batman things on TV and none of them are for me because you've got Bat Wheels, which is anthropomorphic bat vehicles for, you know, the three to seven year old age group. Which I'm sure if you're little and a little boy, girl, or non-binary person who likes, you know, monster trucks and things, this is the show for you. I am none of those things. And next week as we're recording, so a couple of weeks ago from where we are now, Gotham Knights launches on the CW, which is another of these post-Batman series. You know, Batman is dead and... His adopted son, introduced as a new character, has to team up with Harper and Cullen Rowe, the Joker's daughter, and Carrie Kelly to find his killer. And it has the Court of Owls as the main villain. And it's supposed to be like really heavy, like CW teen drama thing. That's too much work. That's, mm. That's, that is a, a, 13-episode mid-season replacement that never gets a second season. I like Carrie Kelly getting some love, though. Yeah, I I was pleased to see her. And, hey, I'll take Harper, Harper and Cullen. And it's like, okay, well, they have to create a new character because all of the Robins were tied up in Titans. So you couldn't get Dick or Jason or Tim. But why they didn't name the kid, why it wasn't Damien was kind of beyond me. Because Damien wasn't anywhere, but. And to tie this all the way back to the beginning, we did talk about a Carrie Kelly tier. Couldn't quite figure it out where to put her in, but she was on the list. A Carrie Kelly tier and a Stephanie Brown tier. And we just, with four tiers, it was like, okay, it's it's these Robins. But at some point we might come up with some some other tiers in there and that we got we got Carrie, Carrie and then Steph, absolutely. Uh, the Stephanie Brown tier will be canceled prematurely. I th- I think we've we've covered this this well enough unless you have any other particular notes. No, I don't have anything. So that means it's time the Crisis of Infinite Scoobies on the big board. Scooby Doo team up number two, the Scarecrow, Mystery Analysts of Gotham is at one thirty three. This is better. Yes. Just for all of the deep dives and the the love shown here, this is better. What okay. do you think about Batman 66 meets the Legion of Superheroes at 113? Ah, that is a good comparison point. I think this is this this still moves above that. I, I like that. I'm a, I'm a Legion head, but first, if it came down to it, if I had to choose between the Legion and the Scooby Gang, I would take the Scooby Gang. And this is just such so much joy and such a celebration of everything about these two franchises. I don't know how much higher it is. Maybe only a spot or two. But I think I would read this again before I read that again. 
I think it's right above that because I don't think it goes above going sane at 110, just three slots above. It's too right above. Yeah, I think that is the spot. I think it is our new 113. So thank you everyone for bearing with us through what might be our most tangenty episode ever. And don't worry, Dan. If you want more Batmite, we can pick stories that have a little more meat to their bones the next time around. <laughs> but we still haven't done that Joe Potato episode you wanted, so there's still that one. Next week, it's stories of three members of the GCPD, Renee Montoya, Harvey Bullock, and Jim Gordon. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grove, June, Conduit of Outdated Joke Names, Jen, come on. Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum, <laughs> Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Go Utes, Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Bye, two bucks. Tim Rooney, and Giorgio Sergioli for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchet Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and then comicsxf.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash batchatwithmatt and will, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at mattlast1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.